Got you covered. Stories of Modern Modesty is supported by listeners on Patreon. Become a patron at patreon.com slash gotyoucoveredpod and continue to support the show on Instagram at gotyoucoveredpod. So back in June of 2022, I announced this podcast on my Instagram story and I asked followers to send in suggestions for guests. And one of those responses was from a follower with the sweetest handle, I love it, Eat, Sleep, Grow, Plants, Lauren Grace. They asked if I knew a potential guest who could speak to the experience of using hair covering and modesty as a tool for sensory overload. They wrote about how their own practice of covering was helping them not only cope with their ADHD, PTSD, gender dysphoria, and autism, but thrive like a richly soiled garden in the sun. Modesty and hair covering, they said, made them finally feel safe enough to explore divine connection and do so entirely on their terms, which I thought was beautiful. So I asked Lauren if they wanted to be interviewed, and very luckily for me, they agreed. It's the ritual of like taking this moment to make myself look like a beautiful painting, to make myself look like a work of art from any angle that doesn't require hours of makeup or sitting at a nail salon or any of this stuff. It's literally just for my peace of mind and body. I didn't realize modesty had that kind of power if I had the choice to dictate how I wanted to do it and explore it. In today's conversation with Lauren Grace, I am delighted and deeply grateful to share with you an experience of modesty that transcends religion, dogma, and suffering, and offers a pathway into what Lauren calls embodied prayer, this practice of presence and unbridled love that offers a gateway into a more peaceful, safe, and quiet being. This episode touches on some topics that some listeners might find upsetting, including domestic abuse, suicide, mental illness, and sexual assault. Please take care and use your best judgment to decide if you'd like to listen today. For listeners who don't wish to hear music, there will be a little bit right as the credits are about to roll in, so feel free to dip out at that point. Let's begin. Hi, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, can. Man, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I can hear you. Um, Well, I'm so happy to be here with you. Why don't you uh, just tell me about what you've eaten today? Um, that's so funny. Well, funny in a haha way and a funny in a weird way, but I was supposed to start my eating disorder uh, treatment program today. So I'm doing a PHP and, um, my weekend did not go according to plan and I had a whole menu and like groceries planned. And so none of that fell through and I actually, sorry, none of it worked out. And then, um, the program didn't fall through, but I had to call and say, I am not prepared. Mm. Can I start on another day? So breakfast was... Kale and rice. It was kale and rice. Sounds great. Then... That's my staple as well. Kale beans and rice or kale potatoes yes. and rice. Oh, man. I have a an almost, it was almost fully vegan chili until I put butter in it because I couldn't find anything else. <laughs> um, I have that. So, and then there was pizza for lunch. So I've eaten. I'm more nervous because I just haven't spoken on a mic in a long time. Yeah. And I also haven't. Yeah, I guess it's weird talking to people. It Normally is. I'm the one kind of getting people to talk. So it's odd being the one sharing, I guess is what I feel like extra nervous about. I was so prepared to have like my water bottle, my phone charger and like cleaned everything. Yeah. And, I've been on that side. Yeah. I um I had a couple of people interview me, which is weird because again, I'm usually the one just like asking questions. It's very weird to be the one thinking and speaking off the top of your head rather than putting someone else in the hot seat. So I totally understand. And if there's anything that you're feeling uncomfy about as we're talking or I don't know, you need a second to like think about things, there's no pressure at all. 
There's no rush. I'm just here to get to know you and and listen to your story, which I'm really excited about. But even just talking to you face to face now, I'm I'm having a a much deeper understanding of just your energy, which is nice. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's all good. More centered. Yeah. Okay. So we, you know that's what I mean. Don't worry about ranting. Don't worry about rambling. I'm just here to listen to you talk about the things that make your heart smile, <laughs> which hopefully will be fairly easy for you. All right. Well. Uh... Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Let's, ready? Let's get the ball rolling. All right. Let's I guess. Do it. I'm ready. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm, the first question I like to ask is for you to talk about however you would characterize the religious or spiritual upbringing of your childhood. The religious upbringing I had was Lutheran by way of technicality, but generally really conservative and fear driven. My mom's white and my dad's black. And my mom's side of the family is scattered, various Christian kind of sects. My parents were in the military. And that's how they met. And so I moved around a lot. My story bounces around a little bit because in some places I was able to see family and other times we lived too far away. So it wasn't until we were kind of back stateside and I was maybe like five, six, seven that I really started to experience religion in a formal way outside the home. And so the Lutheran church combined school that I went to was kind of a home and a nightmare at the same time. And it was this place that simultaneously brought me like wonder and made me question things. And I came to it with a sense of like, oh, wow, I'm going to I'm gonna find God, whatever that means as a kid, when you're like, whatever that is supposed to mean to a child. Instead, what I saw and experienced was a lot of conflicting things that made me question what was the point of what we were doing and what we were praying to and what we were praising when like I was being bullied every day. My teachers were not very kind were really, really derogatory towards other faiths. Like, I remember my second grade teacher, she sat us down, she's like, remember, kids, all Catholics go to hell. And she was very, very serious about it. And uh, then I, sometime later, I went to my aunt's house, my mom's sister, and uh, she converted to Catholicism for her husband when she married. And so I was crying at the table. And my aunt's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, you're going to go to hell. And I'm crying, and I'm so heartbroken. Because, like, I've reached this breaking point of, like, here's this thing that's supposed to give me so much joy and give everyone's, like, you know, so much guidance. And it was being driven home in so many ways on so many sides that, like, only certain people deserved it. And only certain people deserved some level of connection. She called my mom, and my, my mom had no clue that they were, like, you know, teaching some of this kind of stuff. And this began, like, a lot of years of getting in trouble at school and my mom going to the administration and being, like, what's going on? And they're like, well, we can't do anything. That's our students' private home life. We can't step in, especially because they're congregants' families, you know. It was a, it was a very tumultuous time. And uh, then my parents retired and we moved to New Hampshire. At one point, I was driving with my mom in the car and I told her, I'm not comfortable saying the Lord's Prayer at dinner anymore. And it was like my first time really kind of like standing up for myself that way. She kind of just like froze up and she was like, well, you know what? Only whores believe in God and all whores go to hell. I went from just like a kid in wonder, I, like thinking of churches, thinking of stained glass, thinking of the love and the singing and all the stuff that I, I knew on the outside and then stepping into it. It was a totally different world. I just kind of started running at that point, you know, from like uh, from from God to God. My mental health was also kind of like doing a lot of things. And uh, as a teenager, you know, as it does, but underlying conditions that I didn't get diagnosed until actually the past couple of weeks has been like a very long journey. Where do you place yourself religiously or spiritually as an adult now, if anywhere, I guess? 
I think there's more of a picture that comes to mind than like a label. So when I am, um, when the pandemic first started, I got COVID and I became really sick and it took like the whole summer to recover. And so my partner bought plants in the in the winter. And so plants suddenly kind of became like this slow way to get me back to life and out of like this massive depression and like a totally changed body. And so I started what I jokingly called my depression garden. And I killed so many plants. Let me tell you, like I killed like I didn't I maybe got like two tomatoes and like three really sad peppers. And I was so proud of myself that I was like, you know what? Like, I know there's things I messed up and I didn't find out until afterwards. So I have to try again next year. And so over the winter, I kind of made it this goal to just figure it all out. I became like a propagation queen. I had a little altar on top of a desk that just had like series of cuttings from from like special people in my life and like watching my plants grow as my connections grew or plants that people gave me who are no longer in my life having to like choose to like help theirs thrive even though the person is no longer in my life but the plant is still under my care you know like that's that's like a whole being right there no matter how much I, I care or don't care you know however I feel about where it came from or who it came from and I I almost feel like my spirituality is almost like it's trying to get out of like the depression garden phase where you know like so you can see behind me like I have so so many plants right now it's really like trying to learn how to start a garden when you never knew how to keep any plants alive and you've only paid attention to your groceries when you bought them in the store not when like you know my mom had gardens from time to time but she always struggled keeping them alive and squirrels steal everything and it was my own first experience doing that with plants and I feel like at this point with spirituality I'd probably describe my my journey the same way and it started because of a physical injury and that kind of really knocked me back to square one. So, yeah, it's a garden. My spirituality is a garden. Yeah, that's a beautiful image. And I don't, you know, I don't expect any kind of label at all. In fact, sometimes I feel that these labels um, religiously can sometimes conceal the thing that you are seeking within it. At least that's been mm -hmm. my experience that sometimes those identifications, while they're helpful, in some ways, and helping you build community and establish practices within a specific lineage, there's always the weight of adherence to that religion. And then the weight that comes with that can sometimes get in the way of, of yeah. the very thing that you're seeking. As someone who processes things in a very literal way, like the way I hear it come out of your mouth is the picture it paints, like verbatim, you know, the way people speak literally evokes a visceral image and experience of what they're saying, the image their words are painting, specifically like certain kind of religious terms or ideas or like when you say lineage, I'm like, it's like such a powerful word because I'm like, I have no clue what mine is. I have no clue where I come from. I have no clue like any of these things because they translate so fundamentally, I think sometimes. And it's kind of limiting at first. And I think that it posed a really big wall to kind of scale and knock down and rebuild you know there's been so many versions of like how do I get past these ideas they're really like concepts scripts constructs you know like and then how can I not just look at it and see what's missing from it but build my own thing oh yeah I totally feel that I'm curious about how that plays into everything we talked about so far hearing that these plants and caring for them has become a sort of way for you to reflect and care upon yourself that to me really culminates in your work with plant medicine. Can you talk about that? Oh, um, uh, yeah. Um, I'm like already starting to tear up a little bit. 
plant medicine was a really kind of oh man plants let's just stop don't even like don't even put the word medicine at the end like just stop it like plants full stop is such an intimidating big like when I first looked at it I'm like I've always loved them I love flowers I love roses like botanical gardens and butterfly gardens these magical places that that nothing could ever top the feeling of wonder and and joy and I have never been able to keep them alive because I, as I grew up, you know, I went from being a kid that you couldn't stop from doing anything. I became afraid of a lot of things and I became afraid of trying and I became afraid of failure. And given the spiritual kind of upbringing and portion where I literally just like straight up walked away, I turned my back and I was like, I mean, in some ways I kind of ended up not living what my mom, you know, said, but I did a stint in the BDSM community, a pretty long one. I I was traumatized and re-traumatized and made choices that I thought were informed and come to find out were not even close. And I'm living with some of the impacts of that on top of some new things. And it's like the plants made me come to a point where I was like in order to find what I loved about myself, to find that like version of myself before anyone drilled into me any ideas of like what happiness or love meant or what joy felt or what forgiveness was supposed to be like the plants brought me back to that in learning how to get something to grow outside of myself I really had to stop and like break down like what are these ways that I function in what are these ways that I I do things and how do I find the courage to to try something how do I find the courage to say you know what here's a plant clipping and yes it's a living being but if I fail you know what there's a whole other, like, there's a whole bunch more plants out I can try to befriend or grow or propagate. But it really started with just, like, learning how to be comfortable with failing again. I was able to develop this, like, part of myself that was comfortable saying, okay, pick and choose the thing you want to try and, and break it down instead of getting overwhelmed by everything. But also growing the sense of love and, and boundlessness, like, I can do anything. You know, not like, oh, man, I'm going like, to go to the moon on my own. But this feeling of like I can literally grow this this little thing. I can I can make this like this little crassula. Like I can make this grow. On my worst days, when I'm like really at the bottom of my well and I don't know where else I can pull from, there was a point I think earlier in the year where I was like I've taken on too much, too many plants. I can't do this. And that's about the point where I was like really like wondering like what's the point in God anymore. When I started doubting the plants, is when I started like really doubting myself and my connection to anything outside of myself. Faith is a funny thing, and the plants just always have a way to pull it out of you. I cannot control the way a plant will grow. I cannot control the sunlight. I cannot control the rain. I cannot control the weather. If I can find the tiniest thing to have faith, then I can have like this chain reaction of like, and there's so much more. And if I can find that looking in a single leaf, if I can find that in a little sunbeam on a palm frond, if I can find that in a tiny little propagation that's finally growing a single root, that right there is a miracle for me. Sure. My understanding and language around divinity and around God circles so much around the potential for change and the potential for life. And that's what I'm hearing you touch on as you're moving through the way that the plants and the care that you give to them, they're giving it right back to you in a way. Yes. Like it's a it's a really beautiful kind of like feedback yeah. loop, if that's what I could describe yeah. it as. The more you put into it, the more you see and the more feedback you get from it, yeah. right? As someone who's 
never quite fit any one prescriptive box. As a half-black, now out, queer, all kinds of things person, like, I've, I've struggled. I've really struggled to, to follow any social equation. I didn't realize I, I, I struggled in different ways than other people did. And I mean, I'm sure now I know there are plenty of people who struggle like me. We just never got the help we needed. And um, I think especially after um, being in the alternative uh, kind of community and literally experiencing what a power dynamic means, I think that's what taught me to break down like a construct the best, you know. I think it was also, it was weirdly one of the places where I finally was like, man, I have the power and the building blocks to finally make something that works for me. And unfortunately for me, what I realized a little too late was that a lot of people follow the similar or the same scripts that I just still couldn't pick up. I still couldn't fit. I still couldn't figure out what was the part that doesn't work. And ultimately it was me. But it wasn't that I was the problem. It was that I was trying to look for and experience something in a place that wasn't quite meant for it. And I still didn't know exactly what was the best way to find it and experience it. Just surround myself with it. When you're seeking an adrenaline high and an intimate experience, it can feel like a lot of things, but it's certainly not divinity necessarily. And I think what I found in the plants is a much more organic way to break down something that was so hard for me to understand for so long. And that's because it took the people part out. And I was the only person. So I was left to fully understand myself rather than meeting person after person after person and finding like so many parts of, of, of these things I wanted to experience and trying to figure it all out. It's like I can, I can break it down and plant by plant by plant figure myself out before I go out into the world again and and take a deep dive into something. Oh, man, I think I've rambled a little bit on this one. I kind of lost the, the original point you were trying to make with this one. That's OK. No, Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot. <laughs> I appreciate the way that your mind is flowing from concept to concept because it's giving me a lot of background into how you're thinking, which is helping me frame how I'm going to move forward in this conversation because I'm hearing so much um suffering and so much love that didn't have a place to root so to speak and how turning inward and putting that attention into watering and sunning yourself that allowed you to figure out where to put down roots and where to reach and where to grow new leaves and things like that as you're talking about this too I'm I'm curious about the aspect of taking people out of the picture Particularly from the perspective of hair covering, because you've mentioned to me, I don't know if you talk about this publicly at all to anyone, but in our conversations, you've mentioned that hair covering was sort of a way for you to to manage your sensory overload. Can you talk about that a little bit? Coming out of, of the scene and into a relationship that I honestly was not prepared for, but was so like excited to just have some kind of new stability, I entered with a level of complex trauma that I was, oh man, the tip of the iceberg doesn't even begin to describe how little I understood about how deep that was going to go. And the pandemic um, made me take a deep, deep dive, especially because of COVID. So I was starting to fall apart in 2019. And it was largely because of a lot of sensory things that I had no explanation for, according to the doctors, you know, 
And um, I slowly, especially after I got really sick, it, it threw all of my neurological symptoms kind of like in a blender, it threw my arthritis in a blender, it threw my whole body in a blender. And then, you know, the concussions just like, I thought I was just finally starting to understand what the sensory overload looked like. And then the concussions made it so like I had a migraine 24 seven, a sound could make my skin feel like it was on fire. I have a lot of stuff out of alignment in my back. And so there was a lot of stuff with that. But specifically with covering my hair, I have a, a really hard time with dealing with my hair. I had a hard time learning how to take care of it. I had a hard time at just existing with it and, um, and, and really loving it. I, I finally got to like a tipping point where I just shaved it all off. Going out with a bare head was this experience and honesty that I never thought I would ever have. And I mean that in the sense that as a half-black queer woman with big hair, let me tell you how tired I got. Like, I'd be rich every time a friend picked me up from the airport and said, oh, I found you in line because your hair was so big. I was defined by so many parts of my body that it became like a massive, also like a, a part of my eating disorder. It became a part of my, my dysmorphia. It became a part of my gender dysphoria. It became a part of so many things that ultimately has led to a body that is so overstimulated that feels seen, that feels like on fire just from the smallest sensation or just feeling someone looking at me from across the room. And it got to a point where it was enraging me. So when I shaved my head and I finally went out with an uncovered head, my idea was I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to hide behind my hair and no one can judge me by it. And no one can come up to me and sexualize me for it. And no one can do these things. And that was true. The moments when I was out in public and I wanted to feel safe, it meant that no one messed with me. It meant that only the most honest and the bravest of people who actually had good intentions, like, intentions actually tried to talk to me. And the people who normally would have harassed me left me alone. But um, Why do you think that was? You know, I'm still not entirely sure, but I can tell you the experience was so profound that it made it very clear to me that there was something valuable about my body that... I wasn't comfortable with others consuming. And it gave me a feeling of power in some regard. I'm just showing up honestly, and now I can actually see who's afraid of me and who's kind and who wants to talk to me. And people had to really pick and choose their terms that they approached me with because they couldn't hide it. They looked too unsure. They looked too uncomfortable to hide anything else except for their honest intentions, which they had to be honest in order to like come up to me. You know, when my hair started growing back, people started treating me differently again. That honesty started disappearing. The sexualizing came back. The, the unwanted stares came back. I also became just super aware of like everything on my scalp, you know, because my hair was so short. And it just the sensory experience of it became so overwhelming again. At first it was freeing. And then the moment my hair came back, it was overwhelming. And um, so it felt weird, but then I actually found your page. And that is like a that was a big push for me, finding someone who was like, I'm doing modesty on my terms. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. How is this, how is this concept possible? And it was like that big word, modesty. I had to look at it and I was like, what does this mean? Because as a survivor of intimate partner violence, like it is a powerful thing to actually understand like on a, on a true level, what bodily autonomy means combined with the sensory component and how vulnerable that made me and how I basically became like a, a hermit, like a little hermit crab in my house. It was the thing that empowered me to leave the house again. 
It was the thing that made everything quiet. It was the thing that made my skin not on fire. It was the thing that like made me want to touch my plants again. It was the thing that like made me want to care. Like literally covering my body made it quiet. That strength I needed to just not feel so self-conscious was just in covering it and also not feeling shame about it. Covering it and it was a choice. Covering it and I was covering it how I wanted to. And so it didn't matter when anyone else thought like, it has been such like an incredible journey. I mean, like going back to the lineage word, I don't have any one particular place to draw from other than like, well, my dad's black. <laughs> like, but I have no clue where that history lies. And no one in my dad's family, you know, wraps their hair really. It's also been like a dream of mine as a kid, you know. I always wanted beautiful, beautiful, beautiful curls and afro. I wanted huge, huge hair and dark, beautiful skin. And I wanted to be able to wrap it up and I wanted to wear silk scarves and I wanted to be able to cover it. And because it looked like they looked like queens. Every woman I saw in a magazine with the headscarf, I'm like, God, she looks like a queen. And now I finally have that opportunity. But the choice to do it, it felt like mine. Covering my hair makes it so I'm not living in the flashbacks every day, all the time. And actually today, the not being able to start my eating disorder program was, was a really, really big hit. And I'm not proud of how I handled it in the moment. But what I am proud of today is the fact that I made it. And I did so because I took a moment to put a scarf on. I did so because I put a scarf on and then I realized, well, I should probably get dressed. And then I realized I should probably brush my teeth. And then I thought, well, you know what? I still need to finish my breakfast that's sitting on the kitchen island. And it was like this, this moment of like ritual. That's another big word for me is like ritual. And it's the ritual of like taking this moment to make myself look like a beautiful painting, to make myself look like a work of art from any angle that doesn't require hours of makeup or sitting in a nail salon or any of this stuff. It's literally just for my peace of mind and body. I didn't realize modesty had that kind of power if I had the choice to dictate how I wanted to do it and explore it. And without a lineage, it is confusing sometimes to know what's comfortable or what feels okay or non-appropriate to try. But it's, I don't know, it's like a little superhero cape sometimes. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. way you're speaking is so funny because I you're using words and phrases that I think about too. And I think that you and I have had very similar experiences in terms of how we came to hair covering and the way that you experience that as a tool for, I love how you said it just makes everything quiet. I have the exact same sensation. It's one of my favorite things about it is like, I don't know why, I don't know why it works, but it's, there's something about like putting a layer on where you're just like the mental chatter just kind of turns down a little bit and <laughs> everything's just like a little chiller. I don't have to, I'm not thinking so much about what everybody yeah. else is thinking. It gives it a softness and a quietness that I think a lot of people try to seek mm -hmm. in other ways. Um, and it's almost like a little little cheat code. It's yes. like a shortcut. <laughs> I'm like, I could sit yes. here and meditate for 20 minutes every morning <laughs> and like maybe my brain will calm down or I just put my scarf on and then I kind of skip that step. I don't know why it works, but it does for me at least. I'm so glad you're mentioning this because I, I'm supposed to do a service at um, our church on Sunday. We go to our local Unitarian Universalist church. I signed up to do a service and I spent forever panicking about what to pick and I decided on embodied like um uh embodied prayer wow. but I think the the title I chose was much more accurately and it's, it was called living prayer embodiment with intention the point of it is talking about what are the ways 
that you can literally just live your praise? What are the ways you can live your peace? You can live by your values. You can literally just embody the prayers you need, the prayers you want to give, the prayers you want to like. And it doesn't have to be this large concept. It also doesn't have to be this huge ritual, like making yourself a cup of coffee on a quiet morning. It could be having a spontaneous kitchen dance, which I do a lot when I'm in the middle of a panic attack and I need to snap out of it. It's, it could be like, you know, wrapping your head. It could be choosing your clothes mindfully. It could be preparing a meal. Can I share a story that might make some people uncomfortable but isn't explicit? Yeah, yeah. I also, um, oh, time limit. also when you're done with that, uh, feel free to say no. And I know that this is a sin to ask a writer to do this, but I would love if you have any portion of that sermon or you know whatever you want to call I have it the if you have any right now. that you might want to read yeah yeah i would love to hear that yeah let, me, share your let story. me pull that up real quick <laughs> um and i think it'll it'll actually frame the story rather well um okay great let me sorry to put you on the spot no but it's no too juicy to overlook i i appreciate you asking okay living prayer embodiment with intention through embodiment prayer can take on many forms in our lives it's in both small gestures and loud and proud sentiments. It can look like a quiet cup of coffee early in the morning, a spontaneous dance in the kitchen, or taking a moment to appreciate a tree or plant as you pass by. However it takes shape, an embodied approach to prayer can help everyone build a greater sense of connection, find peace of mind, and initiate change and transformation. Okay, tell your story. I'm, I have lots of thoughts bubbling, but I want to hear okay. the story. So there is a point in time where I met a man. I never actually like was in a lot of physical space with him, but he was someone who made it safe to explore things that were really difficult at the time. And one of those things was religion. What I ended up doing was essentially trying to find God, whatever that is supposed to mean, in a person. I wrote prayers to him. I wrote prayers about him. I kneeled on rice every night and prayed to him every night. I texted him every morning. I, I called myself, yeah, oh man, I was like a subject. I, I, there were so many things. I was trying to just figure it out. And thank goodness it only lasted like a couple weeks, but it really was like such a confusing experience at the time because I, I had nothing else. And the only thing I had to compare it to was what I grew up with. I've had to go through to get to this moment where I can sit here with you and I can say, that this form of prayer, this, this scarf, this beautiful moment of like anything I need it to be, anything I need to save myself from is something I do not have to rely on a single person outside myself for and I never, ever will again. I think that's like really what embodied prayer means to me is like it is my choice and it is it can be as beautiful or as heartbroken or like it's whatever medicine it needs to be in the moment. That's great. I just I think that's such an interesting topic. And I'm so new to this term embodied prayer, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's it puts words to some things I've been thinking about a lot recently. I want to understand what if if embodied prayer is the the way that you're living now, where everything that you do, you wish to do with intention for the purpose of serving your heart. What does disembodied prayer feel like? And how was that at play in your life up until whenever it changed? Um, disembodied prayer feels like my eating disorder. It feels like, uh, oh, it feels like my worst parts of myself when I'm dealing with uh, my PMDD flares every month. It feels like 
there is always a reason to decide not to exist anymore. It feels like there's no reason to exist in my body. There's no hope for it. There's no purpose. There's no place for it in the world. There is no home for me. What are you praying for in those moments? That I can remember that I have a life. Like it's literally a miracle I'm alive and talking to you right now. It's a miracle I have survived some of the relationships I've been in. I mean, my plants sometimes, like just like looking for like a sign that my body is not the thing that determines my worth. And I really can't rely on that sentiment because the world we live in and specifically like where I've lived and what I've experienced to show me that like my body, if I allow other people to dictate the terms that we interact with, my body only holds a certain value. And it's dictated by things that I do not think should dictate my value. I'm looking for a reminder that my heart is not all consumed by grief. And I'm looking for like a sign that I am not worthless. I'm looking for a sign that I don't have to have someone love me or think I'm pretty to know that I deserve to be standing here on my own two feet. Sometimes I'm just looking for something that will remind me to breathe. Sometimes it's someone miraculously stepping in. Sometimes it's stepping outside to go take a breath of fresh air. Lately, it's been covering my hair or changing my outfit or realizing I'm so exposed that I literally feel paranoid. I feel so exposed that I'm hyper aware of every inch of skin on me. So maybe I need to put on a long black dress and cover my hair. Maybe I need to throw on a sweater. Maybe I need to doll myself up, but in a way that's actually like, you know, not just lipstick and mascara. Maybe it's my favorite pair of earrings. Taking a step into embodied prayer or specifically like something like my hair, covering my hair, modesty, taking a step into that as a choice to live. You've mentioned to me that modesty has allowed you to finally feel safe to explore divine connection and do so on your own terms. Can you talk about this, this phrase divine connection and what that means to you? I'm a really big fan of like a garden of spirituality, like the garden being the place where I'm growing my sense of spirituality and connection. I think I look at the world as a single organism. Sometimes we tend to take on almost like a parasitic or viral capacity in my mind when I'm like, ah, the state of the world, us parasites. And I kind of had to choose to start finding other ways to look at it. And, and that wasn't really possible until I was able to kind of quiet my mind. And that's, you know, covering my hair and more often started being a part of that. And the thoughts I tend to have when I'm able to cover up are more like, you know, um, less like, what do we do? Like, I'm just a parasite. There's nothing more left. Like, we're like, we're, we're all doomed, you know, like less of that and more of like problem solving. More like, well... If we are an organism, like we're in the feedback loop, we're in my feedback loop on my small scale, on my little island in this organism, my little cell, what can I do to function better? It's not to say that all of humanity acts in a toxic way or in a detrimental way, but sometimes when I look at the wider spread damage we've done or that the earth has experienced or that people, whole groups of people have experienced, it hurts. You know, it hurts to hold that. In choosing to kind of explore that and strengthen it, you know, and also like really understanding now the, the importance of like that quiet feeling, the importance of, of needing that to kind of quiet that fuzzy, loud, that static, that interference. I need this in order to think clearly about the rest of everything else. Can I have a rephrase on the question? Because I think I'm trying to yeah. answer like three separate parts of it and trying to find a way to weave it together. 
Yeah. Um, well, the, the original question was that you had told me that modesty has allowed you to feel safe to explore divine connection on your own terms. Mm, so yeah. I want I want to understand what this word divine connection means to you and then how modesty has been a key to that. Divine connection, the thing that makes my heart beat, the thing that makes me remember to take a breath of air even when I don't realize I'm holding my breath. The thing that allows spring to happen even when you're convinced it's never going to stop raining and the snow is never going to disappear and the flowers are never going to come back. In terms of connecting to it, that's where it gets complicated. The whole picture, it's way too big. There's too many parts. They're all moving. I can't control anything. The part where modesty then comes in is that quieting factor. That centering moment of like, whoa, 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 how can I scale it down to what I can actually affect in my realm? By doing that and incorporating modesty, it's allowing me to remember more often that the world doesn't have to be this huge, big, out of control spider web that I'm just trying to figure out how to get out of. It doesn't have to be that all the time. It's so easy to be absorbed by that chaos to incorporate modesty where I can, to choose embodied prayer where I can, to incorporate it in my day where I can. I am starting to understand that there is a path, although I may not always know what it looks like, I can start to develop that sense of intuition as to what it feels like, but I have to be quiet. I have to take out some of the noise. I have to control what I can to get myself in a place to think clearly in order to see all of that kind of disappear. Strengthening, exploring, you know, any kind of connection to divinity encapsulates this journey of learning what it feels like to be in my body and follow what it needs, not according to what other people want, not according to other people's judgments, not according to other people's lessons or beliefs or experiences, but like literally what in real time I am experiencing what I can tell my body's like saying to me. And it's an incredible thing to have that for the first time and potentially like ever truly i'm almost hearing embodied prayer as a sort of gateway like yeah. in the sense that like going from disembodiment and noise and disconnection to connection awareness presence there has to be some kind of change often because you're changing yes. like mental and emotional and like spiritual states to go through that there has to be some kind of trigger for that change to happen and it sounds like what I'm understanding embodied prayer to be now is not just a mindset, but it's a set of actionable yeah. tools to transition between those states. Yes. So the more I can remember to wrap my hair, the more I can remember to eat breakfast in the morning, yeah. the more I can make it a, the more I can take the the intentional steps I know I need to intentionally take. Otherwise, for lots of reasons, memory, ADHD, like I just have trouble keeping patterns. And also because yeah. of my body and how loud it is, I can forget my basic needs. One part of it that we haven't really talked about that I am curious about is yeah. how you've used rapping to explore your gender identity and the expression of that. Ooh. Oh, man. The days I feel most dysphoric are the ones where it's the hardest to like even when I finally get to that point where I'm like, all right, I'm choosing to do it. They're like the days where my body feels the most chaotic and the days I have the most trouble, like when I look in the mirror and I'm like, nothing looks right. Those are the days when I'm feeling most disquieted and most like, I don't know who I am. And so mm -hmm. choosing to rap on those days is like when I am really saying like, I'm finding a way no matter what to, to, to make myself look lovable and beautiful and feel good. 
whether it's a good day or a bad day, but particularly on the bad days, rapping is a choice to expand on my gender. To expand in the moments of discomfort when I just want to disappear is when it's the hardest, but also the most impactful. They're like the days where I'm like, oh, wow, I never would have tried this had I not felt so horrible that I would have been desperate for something new. Or I felt like I just needed something to top it off. I felt really great today, but you know what would make it even better if I could just get that sense of like wrapping my hair just gives me that like blanket of calm. And it just allows me to like enjoy that joy that I have in my presentation and who I feel I am that day and who I feel like my body is like that day. And it's like, it can be the cherry on top or it can be the thing that's holding me together. There is this feeling, I used to hate wearing jeans. I still hate wearing jeans personally, but this, this, this will make sense in a second. But wearing jeans became this thing like, I hated wearing pants so much that by the end of the day, when I came home, I'm like, my pants are the only thing holding together my brain, my everything. I'm like, these pants, once these come off, I am no longer a person. I am no longer accountable to anybody outside. And, you know, slowly as I like be able to find clothes that I actually feel like they fit right, I don't come home or get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to just like not be a person anymore. I'm like, wow, I was able to get through a day comfortably and I still feel like a person. What? And so wrapping my hair is, you know, some days feels like, oh, those pants, I just can't wait to like be done with this. That sometimes I needed to get through a task. So, you know, pants are necessary sometimes. Sometimes wrapping my hair is necessary even when I don't want to do it. But ultimately, like, I want every scarf I have to feel like a beautiful dress or a house dress, whatever kind of dress I need. I needed to, I want it to feel like, do I need a ball gown or do I need something that just reminds me that it's okay to be a mess today? Yeah. Does that make sense? I guess that's how yeah. I want to feel my gender. I get, I've, I've been struggling a long time to like kind of formulate words about gender and specifically as I experience it. Maybe um, we don't have I to think... use the word gender. Maybe just to zoom out a little bit, maybe a better word in this moment might be your queerness. Like how have how has yeah. it allowed you? I mean, that also goes into like what the definition of queer is. And that's something that's well, so unique to every person. I like the, I think it's the fluidity part though yeah. that allows yeah. me I think it's the most challenging and simultaneously the most freeing because the more I master my ability to go with the ebb and flow and literally follow the fluidity of where my body and my mind are at, the more I can unite that, the more kind of peace I can integrate into my everyday life. But a big part of doing that is the wrapping my hair. Yeah, yeah that's something that I have experienced too. Um, that's really hard to describe, I think, to people who haven't experienced it directly is that any spiritual practice that you do is trying to gear you up for the ability to handle complexity and to hold complexity mm -hmm. because the only way to even gain an iota of an understanding of what's going on in this world spiritually, you have to be able to hold seeming contradictions and complexities. Mm -hmm. And for me, and what I'm hearing you describe too, is that in the same way, you're your gender is just a tool with which to explore that sort of fluidity and to come to terms with it and to be a part of it. And modesty and hair covering enables that exploration of that fluidity in a way that feels a bit more secure so that you can sort of ride the waves a little better. Yeah. Kind of yeah. And when you phrase it like that, I'd also add that like that that's very true. But and it's nice because like I can get my whole outfit to match the level of safety I need in order to function for the day. That's great. But like I think the thing about specifically wrapping my hair, because going back to that, this is like the most powerful part of modesty is, is the, the hair wrapping right now for me. It's, it's like that final thread that goes in a, in a garment when you finish it. 
cloth has so much power. The way you can manipulate it and create shape with it is something I've always admired. It's literally like being able to paint on your body if you can do it right. And that is an incredible, incredible thing to me. I, I'm always, I'm blown away by the power of clothes every day. I used to want to be a historical like um, curator for fashion. Yeah, I used to sew a lot before you know my my arthritis got really bad. I actually, I'm hand sewing again now, but it's a slow process. But the this, especially as it relates to gender, when my gender feels so disconnected from the body I'm in as it is, this is also a way to just pull it back. Mm-hmm. It's that thread to just kind of like no 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 come back. Come back. We're a whole piece today. This is that that last thread that goes in. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. As I'm listening to you, I'm hearing something new sort of emerge in the in the realm of embodied prayer that makes it a lot more active because I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is that prayer feels very passive in a way. Like you're acting, you're you're speaking or thinking however you practice prayer, like you're you're doing it um, with the hope that something might come about, right? But the way that you've described modesty as a tool for you to move through grief and to offer grace to yourself, I'm hearing a more active level to it. And what I mean by that is that instead of wishing and instead of hoping, embodied prayer can look like living the result of the prayer, living in even if it's not here yet, living in the reality that might come about as a result of that prayer mm-hmm. and that in itself being healing and magical. Yeah, it's that level of action behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's the part, I think the most empowering part of the action is that it, it's mine. Mm. It's not someone coming in to save the day. Embodied prayer is a choice to take a small step or a big step, but just whatever step I need that spark to just change something. I have no accurate prediction over what's going to happen later in the day or, you know, how far it's going to get me. Maybe I need to do something else. Maybe it'll turn my whole day around. But it's that choice to do something rather than just, you know, a hope, a wish, and a prayer. Yeah. And, you know, and then trying to go about your day. Yeah, there's an active state to it. That's really, that's really lovely. If there's more people like, you know, queer people, neurodivergent people, whoever, like, Especially if you're looking at it from like a sensory way. I mean, any reason, if you want to try it, if it gives you some peace, if it's literally just like throwing a blanket over your head sometimes, if that's how you need to start, that's how I figured it out. You yeah. know what? Go from there and and do what works for you. There's literally no one size fits all answer for anybody. And I used to say this a lot when I was teaching and it, it made some people mad. They're like, I want an answer. And I'm like, the answer's in you. You have to figure it out for yourself. And it's like, it doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can be a really amazing thing to choose to do something just for you in what way works for you. Embodied prayer allows you to choose to kind of construct that experience, yeah. to direct it a little bit, to put you in a place where you can choose to follow it. I guess modesty was the thing that gave me that thing, that gave me that glimpse and that, that actual concrete understanding. Something is there. I can't always name it. But it's there, and this is what gives me a connection and reminds me that life is worth living. Are you or someone you know having thoughts of suicide or experiencing a mental health or substance abuse crisis? 988 connects you to compassionate, confidential support for free. 988 is the new three-digit dialing code for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. For years, the Lifeline, formerly known as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 
has answered tens of millions of calls and helped people overcome mental health-related distress. 988 is the same trusted resource. When you call, text, or chat 988, you'll be quickly connected to a trained crisis counselor who will listen to your concerns, provide support, and make sure that you get additional help if needed. There is hope, the lifeline works, and you are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. This episode was written and produced by me, Aiden Kent. The intro is voiced by Kayla Holder, and the music is from Ryan Weber. Become a patron on Patreon and send in comments and questions on Instagram. I would love to hear them, both at GotYouCoveredPod. If you have any lingering thoughts, please consider leaving a review wherever you found this podcast. It is the easiest way to support the show, and it would mean a lot. Thanks for listening.